turn in your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a black hardcover one in the seats in front of you. Feel free to use that. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5. And as you're turning there, would you please stand with me as a way to honor the reading of God's Word. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 5 through 11. Paul, in his letter to the church at Corinth, said this, Now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Oh, let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our time in his word. Father, we thank you for um, this church family. We thank you that we can um, joke together and um, be together. Lord, we thank you for all the things that you're doing at Village Bible Church. Pray for those who are not able to be here today. Uh, we pray that you would heal them, that you'd be with them in whatever capacity. Lord, we also ask that you would bless this time as we want to get out of your word what you have for us. And I, uh, I know that you have um, some very important things for us in this passage. So Lord, we, we ask that you would speak through um, your word to us, that you would open our eyes, open our ears, and we pray for those who have never had their eyes open to the glory of Jesus Christ, that this morning might be that morning that that would happen. So we pray again for your spirit to work. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. It is Valentine's Day. And uh, I, I celebrate Valentine's Day by, for my girls. Uh, Amy and I have this great idea that, uh, well, actually it was my idea, but uh, <laughs> I, that I'd ask her to marry me. Uh, three days before Valentine's Day so we could celebrate our proposed anniversary when, you know, three days before everyone else is celebrating so there's no one in the restaurants on the 11th. Of course, we didn't go to a restaurant on the 11th, but hypothetically, <laughs> 10 years ago on Thursday, I asked Amy to marry me. And she said yes. And I'm <laughs> very happy she did and continues to do so. But we're talking about love on Valentine's Day. Um, in a kind of roundabout way. So uh, I thought I would read some passages on love and um, let these resonate with your soul. Proverbs thirteen twenty four: Whoever spares the rod hates his son. But he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Isn't that your life verse for Valentine's Day? <laughs> That's the one. It's on your coffee cup this morning. <laughs> um, why in the world am I reading that verse? Uh, well, I'm going to actually pack a bunch with it, so I won't answer that question yet. Proverbs 19:18 also says, Discipline your son, for there is hope. Do not set your heart on putting him to death. Whoa. Proverbs 22:15 is one of my favorites. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. My dad repeated that to me as a child, <laughs> and uh, folly was driven far from me. Proverbs 23, 13-14 says this, do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. 
If you strike him with the rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. Um, Happy Valentine's Day. (laughs) Uh, This is why I read this, because um, Valentine's Day is a a part, it shows us a part of love. It shows us romantic love. Uh, We don't want to dismiss the butterflies, the sweaty palms. We don't want to dismiss um, the romance. That's a a very good thing. God made those things, um, and he made them for us to enjoy. But that is not the entire scope of love, right? Um, You know, in fact, those feelings go away sometimes. Sometimes we can't even conjure them up, (laughs) um, even if we try. Uh, The feelings also change. They're different. Uh, for newlyweds than they are for people that have been married for decades. Um, and love still applies to those various phases of our life. You know, love applies in ways that are not romantic. And I think that love also applies very clearly in discipline. Um, it, is, it is unloving for a parent or a teacher or an authority to not discipline when there is an issue come up. When there is sin, when there is a violation of the community's rules, it is imperative, actually, that the authority discipline in order to love that person. I do not love my daughters if I do not teach them that the street is dangerous because there are cars driving to and fro on it. Uh, I don't love my children if I say, well, I guess they'll learn. I'm going to discipline, I'm going to teach. Uh, When my uh, girls talk back to their mom, I'm not going to just let that fly and let that become a good uh, kind of characteristic. Oh, yeah, they just talk back to their mom because, you know, we all get along so well. We just kind of brush it off. No, you don't talk to my my wife like that. We're going to discipline out of love so that you learn how to function in society, so that you learn how to see a full-orbed love. Love in the scriptures is a very deep and a very well-rounded Thing. And this morning we're going to look at one aspect of love in church discipline. And specifically in the restoration of one who has been disciplined. Paul, uh, in writing the letter to the Corinthians, um, Pastor Ron in his sermon a few weeks ago in the introduction, uh, covered uh, the complexities of the missionary journeys and the trips and how many times Paul has been to Corinth and the letters that he's written we have um, two of the letters, scholars think there might be at least four or five mentioned. We only have First and Second Corinthians. But he has written them a letter after a painful visit that he mentions back up in verse 1 of chapter 2. He talks about pain. He's talked about comfort at the beginning of the letter. He's talked about suffering. He's going to talk about a lot more of that. He's talked about conflict. Uh, the, the verse before the one we're starting with this morning, chapter 2, verse 4, says, For I wrote to you out of much affliction... And anguish of heart and with many tears. Not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Paul wanted to let the Corinthians know the abundant love that he has for them by writing a painful letter. He wrote a painful letter to them in order to show his abundant, overflowing love. And those two things are not mutually exclusive. They don't make for a good Hollywood movie, but they are actually what the Bible talks to us about love. So I want you to look uh, at verse 5, 2 Corinthians 2, verse 5. And point number one in your notes is interpersonal sin directly affects the whole church. Interpersonal sin directly affects the whole church. I think you could honestly say that all sin uh, affects the church. But I think that um, interpersonal communication, relationships, um, specifically and directly affect the entire church. In verse 5, Paul says, Now if anyone has caused pain, and that seems to take us 
from some of the generalities of the letter that he'd written and the painful visit that he'd had. And now the word anyone, um, it could be one, someone, uh, begins to zero on on a specific, zero in on a specific situation. There are times in Paul's letters where he's not afraid to name names. Um, and this is one of those places where he actually does not name names. Um, for whatever reason, for a sensitivity that he knows is happening, um, so that he uh, does not have to dive into the details. Whatever the case, he does not mention any names here, but it seems that he is referring to an actual personal sin going on in the church. And this sin has caused pain, or your version might have grief or sorrow. And Paul interestingly says, now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me. But as you read through the letter, that's exactly what happened, is this sin, uh, this pain, this grief was caused towards Paul, because of Paul. We're not exactly sure the details because there's a little bit of vagueness here. But it seems to me that the best reconstruction is that uh, Paul went to visit Corinth because he heard that things were not getting better after he wrote the letter of 1 Corinthians. You remember when we studied 1 Corinthians? A lot of problems in that church. He wrote 1 Corinthians and it seems like there was not an immediate good response to that. So uh, Paul hears a report about this and gets on a ship and goes across the sea to visit the Corinthians. And it is a painful visit. It does not go well. In fact, it is so hard that he cancels another visit to the Corinthians. Pastor Ron talked about this last week as his change in travel plans. But as, uh, as this is happening, I think that probably the best reconstruction is somebody at the church, possibly a leader, um, directly rebelled against Paul's leadership. And we're going to see this more as the letter goes on, that there has been um, an influx of people that want to discredit Paul. Uh, he's not a good speaker. He's weak. He writes you harsh letters, but when he's there in person, he's just weak. Um, he's not really an apostle. We are super apostles. Um, and so people in the church are getting drawn into their camps again. Remember that? I am of Apollos. I am of Cephas. I am of Paul. I am of Christ. So there's factions. There's division. And it seems that somebody, anyone here, um, has caused pain. And yet Paul has, he says, he caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. Uh, Paul wants them to understand that the, that the offense actually affects the entire church. The entire church is bound up in this rebellion, in this interpersonal sin. And so he has apparently already directly given them instructions, either in his previous visit or in a letter that we don't have. Okay, He has given them personal instructions that they need to discipline this member. Most of church history, uh, most scholars, most pastors, uh, would take us back to 1 Corinthians 5. If you want to turn there real quick, I just want to point this out to you. Um, most scholars have um, gone back to 1 Corinthians 5 and tried to connect the dots. So they're going to say, in, in 2 Corinthians 2, Paul is dealing with the aftermath of 1 Corinthians 5. And in 1 Corinthians 5, um, you remember that there was uh, a man in the, in the church at Corinth who was sleeping with his stepmom. Um, and not only that, that was, that was bad enough. Um, it was a kind of sexual immorality that not even the pagans around them would have practiced. Uh, but the church itself in Corinth was confused about what it meant to be free as a Christian, and so actually was kind of arrogant about it. Like, look how tolerant we are. Look at this. We're, we're just allowing everyone to love each other. They were really confused on what it meant, and Paul is very direct. Uh, look at uh, verse 3 of First Corinthians chapter 5. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. 
And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Don't miss this last part. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. He goes on to continue to call them to holiness and holy living in a place like Corinth. It could very well be that in 2 Corinthians 2, this is the situation that is being addressed. However, I think there are enough clues to actually take us to um, the rebellion of a certain other person, another individual. We know there was plenty of sin to go around in the church at Corinth. So I just want to let you know, maybe your study Bible um, says that. I'm going to take the position that although that situation was dealt with in 1 Corinthians, that the situation in 2 Corinthians 2 is not the same situation, although who knows, it may have been related. So in this situation, Paul is, is saying that the church is corporately affected by the sin of this one. Public offense necessitated public discipline. Public offense necessitated public discipline. The offense was not um, a private one-on-one offense. It was a public offense. It was one that had ramifications immediately for the whole church. I want to read you a part of our church constitution that deals with specifically how our church would deal and has dealt with the situation of church discipline. When there is unrepentant sin, when someone in the congregation has sinned against someone else and is not willing to repent and is hardening their heart, our church constitution says this, the act of exclusion, or other churches may be called excommunication, is in harmony with the commands of God. We are exhorted to exclude from the fellowship of believers a person who holds a false doctrine, who walks disorderly, or who disturbs the unity of the Spirit in the bonds of peace. Later on in our Constitution, um, there's pages on this process. It says that a two-thirds vote by membership is required. A two-thirds majority is required to exclude someone from the membership at Village Bible Church. That would be, amongst other things, how we would go about practicing what we believe Paul is teaching here in 2 Corinthians 2. However, that's not the end goal. You may have noticed that Um, the title of today's sermon is With the End in Mind. We're thinking ahead, we're thinking forward. And we're thinking towards this. You have this in your notes too. A person who has been excluded from membership at Village Bible Church may be restored to membership. An excluded person shall provide assurance to the Board of Elders of having returned to all the scriptural principles required for membership. Upon recommendation of the Board of Elders to the church, such a person will be restored into membership by the majority vote of the members present at a meeting. Some of you um, can remember this being practiced in our church and having gone through this. This leads us uh, directly into point number two, where we kind of get a little bit more into what happens and what Paul is calling for. Point number two, the disciplined person who repents should be forgiven, comforted, and reaffirmed in love. The disciplined person who repents should be forgiven, comforted, and reaffirmed in love. And just as a side note, we're trying to reconstruct what's going on in the argument. So if you go home this afternoon and want to read through this again, um, we are trying to reconstruct from hints and from things said actually throughout the letter. Chapter 7 deals with this as well. and trying to put um, things back uh, into a timeline. But verse 6 then again focuses on someone, a one, such a one. Verse 6 says, For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. Who is this one? 
Well, he's the guy we just talked about. A, a, a man, possibly a leader, possibly, who had somehow led a rebellion against Paul. Um, perhaps he had directly contradicted Paul in public. Whatever he had done, there has been punishment, verse 6, meted out to him. Okay? And the punishment is by the majority. The punishment is by the majority. Now, this may mean that Paul is, is trying to say not the whole church agreed on this. Um, or it may be referring to some kind of members meeting where there was a deliberation and there was some kind of official or formal or judicial statement or punishment or discipline given, like, like in a voting process. That may be hinted at here. The majority has punished such a one. But Paul now says it's enough. So, so here's what they did. Paul either told them in person or he wrote them and said, you need to take care of this problem. If this person will not repent, you need to punish him. And here in this letter now, um, apparently he has heard uh, back the results of this and he now says it's enough. What you did was good, it was right, but it's enough. It's done. Verse 7, So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So as we kind of pivot from the theme of pain to the theme of forgiveness, although it doesn't directly say it there, we're going to imply that that Paul is not ready to forgive someone who has not repented. So implicit in the text is the fact that this man was punished, he was excluded by the majority, and it's implicit that now he has in some ways repented. He has repented of his sin, he has turned back to the church, and now Paul says he has turned, and now the church needs to turn. The church needs to turn so that this man can return to the church. The punishment is enough. It was deserved. It's over. It's enough. Now, you need to forgive and comfort. Those are the two words that are given here. Forgive him and comfort him. Uh, this is not the, the normal New Testament word um, for uh, forgive. Uh, it means more literally to extend grace. So the church needed to extend, to offer grace to this one who had sinned and now has repented. They need to turn to him. And the, the theme of, forg- of comfort has already been covered in Second Corinthians. And it's going to keep reappearing. So this man was to be reached out to with forgiveness. The church was to declare forgiveness to this man. And then they were to encourage him, to comfort him, to, to care for him, to bring him back in. It, it, was, it was over. The punishment was done. It's time to look to restoration. It's time to bring in restoration. Um, the, the word here, uh, that he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow, and that, that word um, referred to, to several different things. It could be used of an animal just devouring prey. So the overwhelmed nature of a, a big animal eating a small one. Um, or it could also be used of waves swallowing up swimmers, where you watch a swimmer and the wave comes and just swallowed up. The swimmer is gone. And so Paul's concern is that the punishment not go too far and not go too long so that this one who has repented of his sin is not overwhelmed, is not swallowed up in sorrow. It indicates that he is, he is sorry for what he has done. He is sorrowful. He knows what he's done is wrong. He has repented, and now it's time for the church to restore him, to extend grace. So you have a, another little line in your notes there. We confront sin for the purpose of restoration, 
of relationship. We confront sin for the purpose of restoration of relationship. The, the goal, the end in mind for confrontation is restoration. We don't kick someone out and go, all right, done with that. Glad that bozo's not here anymore. That's not what we're working on here. We're working for the restoration. Um, Paul is, is, is writing these letters and thinking about this issue in tears. Uh, Paul is ready for them to stop the punishment. Let's bring him back in. Verse 8 uses um, a, a, some very interesting language. From the Apostle Paul, right? So I beg you. <laughs> see the language he's using? You see Paul's heart in this? Beg you. I urge you. Reaffirm your love for him. And that word for reaffirm um, is another judicial term. And so it very well may be that Paul is saying in a public official setting, setting reaffirm him. Maybe even revote him in. Somehow make it public, make it official that this one has been received back into the membership of the church at Corinth. Uh, I, I would go a step further. So this is me standing away from the Bible. I'm going to go a step further and say that this was meant to overwhelm him with joy, that we love you, come back. We're your family, come back in. This is a celebration of the, the effectiveness of the discipline. It worked. It did what it was supposed to do. This man is sorry he has turned from his sin. Welcome him back in. Uh, Chris Ostom, a uh, uh, church father, from the 4th and 5th century says, to punish a man without healing him means nothing. To punish a man without healing him means nothing. And that's why I read the verses that I did at the beginning of the sermon from Proverbs. The purpose of disciplining the son, the purpose of the rod, is not to exact some kind of relief from, man, I can't just stand this kid. <laughs> Driving me nuts! <laughs> no, the, the purpose of those verses was to teach the child that you love them and that they can't act that way. And to curb their behavior and to train them, discipline on how they are to act and how they are to live. That's the purpose of confrontation. In a little book that I have in my office um, on the topic of church discipline, uh, the writer says this. This is very practical. Once a church decides to restore a repenting individual to its fellowship and the Lord's table, there should be no talk of a probation period or second-class citizenship. Rather, the church should publicly pronounce its forgiveness, affirm its love for the repentant individual, and celebrate just as the father of the prodigal son celebrated. Isn't that a good picture? Um, you, you don't come back in on probation. You're, you're back in the family. That's risky. That's risky, but that's what love does. Love risks. And that's what we want to always be aware of as a church. Listen, um, if you're at this church or any other church for any amount of time, you're going to sin against others and others are going to sin against you. Um, and there are going to be unpleasant things that happen. And, and sometimes I, I feel like we, we hear this like, oh, churches are so, oh, all these things happen. And I'm like, don't they happen in your family too? <laughs> Isn't your, these things? Jim's shaking his head. That doesn't happen in his family. Okay, good. Parenting seminar from Jim and Debbie after the service. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, th this, this happens in a family. People rub each other the wrong way. People didn't get enough sleep. People say things they shouldn't say. People scheme, people plan, people lie. And this happens in the church as well. And so when it does, we need to um, address it. All right, uh, point number three in your notes. 
A test of true believers is obedience to apostolic teaching. A test of true believers is obedience to apostolic teaching. Apostolic teaching is just a fancy way of saying the teaching of the apostles, which for us is not Paul directly saying things to us like it would have been for the Corinthians. If Paul showed up at the church in Corinth, he was an apostle of Christ and bore a special authority. Uh, I do not bear that authority. However, this book does because the apostles wrote the New Testament. And so we are tested by our obedience to the apostolic teaching of the New Testament. Look at verse 9. Paul tells us why he wrote. This is why I wrote. That I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. This is not Paul saying, ha, 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 it's just a test. <laughs> it's not what he's saying. He's saying they, were, they needed to do this. They needed to discipline this member. They needed to act like this in order to pass the test. To be obedient in everything. Paul was an apostle. He spoke for God. And so he wrote this letter so that he might test them. And this issue of testing continues to pop up in the rest of 2 Corinthians. In fact, it's how Paul closes out the letter. He closes the letter by challenging the Corinthians to test themselves to see whether or not they are in the faith. So this test was given to the Corinthians. And I think Paul says this to say, you passed. Good job. You passed it. Hey, it worked. You did what you needed to do. It was hard. It was painful. It caused grief and sorrow, but it worked. And now this person needs to be brought back into the fold. A plus. Good job, church at Corinth. Well, the way that Paul ends here is to uh, let them know a further um, thing going on in the background, to remind them of the reality of what's going on. So point number four is forgiveness foils Satan's plans of division. Forgiveness foils Satan's plans of division here in verses 10 and 11. Paul says some interesting things here that we're going to look at. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Uh, remember, again, Paul is an apostle, and so this is authoritative speaking going on. Um, he says, if you forgive anyone, I forgive them as well. As the apostle, as the, the one who planted the church in Corinth, as their spiritual father, he is saying, I'm on your team. I agree with the way that the church has handled this and is handling these things. And then he says, indeed, what I have forgiven, and this curious phrase, if I have forgiven anything. When you, I mean, the whole thing's about forgiveness. What are you talking about? If I have forgiven anything, what does that mean? Well, I think the answer is in a parallel in verse 5. So go back up to where we started. Okay. Now, if anyone has caused pain... He has caused it not to me. Well, no, he, he, he did cause it to Paul, but Paul is trying to include the whole church here and say, it wasn't just me. It wasn't only me that was sinned against. The entire church was sinned against. And I think that here in verse 10, Paul is paralleling it and not just kind of making it petty about, yeah, I forgive him because, you know, he messed with me and now it's all over. He's not looking for vindication. Ha ha, I was right and he was wrong. What he's trying to say is, if I've forgiven anything, Meaning, I have forgiven things, okay, but, but we're moving on. We're moving on. I have forgiven something, but let's not dwell on that. Let's move on to the restoration project going on here. Okay? And, and, he, and then he continues to go on and says, If I have forgiven anything, it has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. So the, 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 the forgiveness aspect here is not to focus on Paul. He's not saying, look how great I am because I've forgiven something. He's saying, look, we have forgiven this one, this individual 
who has sinned, and we've done it, and, and he says, I've done it for your sake. Paul is entirely focused on the church's well-being and the church's good. He has no place for his self-vindication here. Now, later on in the book, he's going to spend lots of time defending himself. But again, it's never in this petty vindicating of self coming out on top. It's always for the good of the church, for the sake of the church. He wants good for the Corinthians, for their sake. I think in one sense, he's toning down the rhetoric. There's been a lot of division. There's probably been a lot of words said. Let's just tone everything down. Let's just tone everything down. Forgiveness has been given. His love for the church is shown. You see Paul's heart of love for this church, even in the language that he chooses to use. And that's what love is. That's what love does. Love is a giving of oneself for the good of another. So Paul gives himself in forgiveness for the good of the church at Corinth. And then they have this phrase, in the presence of Christ. In the presence of Christ. It literally means before the face of Christ. Or in Latin, it means corum Deo which is our youth theme for this year. Coram Deo, before the face of God, before the face of Christ. Paul says that this forgiveness has been given for the sake of the church in the presence of Christ. I, I don't think that Paul is saying he had uh, an, ec- an ecstatic vision where he was in heaven in front of the risen Christ on the throne. I think that he is saying that, that he himself consciously lived in the presence of Christ. Christ in you, the hope of glory from Colossians. Um, Paul was so aware of Christ's presence that he lived in such a way as to remember that in all that he did. Now, what if we lived our lives as if Christ were present? What if we did that? Because I got a secret for you. He is. (laughs) He is present. Uh, But what if we lived our lives as if we were in front of his face in his presence, before his presence. This is how Paul lived his life. And this is why Paul could forgive an offense like this against himself. Because he considered everything to be in Christ's presence. He was in Christ's presence in how he lived his life. And so this forgiveness comes out of this context. Now, I would challenge you this week. Okay, this is Really nice, it's easy on Sunday to sit in the chair. We even have air conditioning in the middle of winter um, for your comfort. (laughs) Um, It's easy to sit here and to say, yeah, I agree with that. Yes, I agree with that. But tomorrow at the office or tomorrow um, out wherever you're working, tomorrow at school, tomorrow in your home, this is not so easy. Because you didn't get enough sleep, because your neighbors were loud, because, 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 because you can think of a million things that could make tomorrow not an ideal day. But what if we live this week, what if we live tomorrow before the face of God, as Paul did? Would we, would we be able to forgive others more easily, as Paul did, if we were living in the presence of Christ, as if Jesus was there with us, hearing what we say to our coworkers, hearing what we say to our husband, to our wife, to our teachers. What if we did that? What would it look like? And I think it would look a lot different than the norm. Because to, to, to sense the presence of Christ means I'm going to change my behavior because he's here. He's here. He's with me. And, and by the way, Matthew 28 says he has all authority. <laughs> and so I'm in the presence of the all-authoritative one. And that would change the way 
that I live my life. So try to remember that this week as you go from this place. He says he's forgiven for their sake in the presence of Christ. In the last verse, verse 11, so that. That's a very helpful uh, phrase. Whenever you see that or so that in the Bible, you're getting a purpose. Here's why. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan. See, Paul sees, I think this is because he lives in the presence of Christ, Paul sees to the invisible world. Paul sees what's really going on. That's why in Ephesians 6, he says, um, our, our battle, our war, is not with flesh and blood. Listen, our enemies are not people that we can give a label to. <laughs> okay, our, our enemies are not those liberals, or those Mormons, or those Muslims. or the, Those are not the enemy. Paul clearly tells us that the enemy okay, are principalities and powers in heavenly places. That the demonic realm is real. That Satan is real. That he hates God and that he will do anything to work to destroy us. And so in that, Paul tells us that in all of this, forgiveness, restoration, confrontation, church meetings, voting, and all of these things, we are not just to look at tabulating numbers. We are not just to look at outward behavior, although that's important. But we're to look into the invisible realm and see Satan at work trying to sow division. Satan would love to, um, to disrupt what we're doing. In fact, um, no doubt his minions are in here at this moment. See, that's like weird. Like, we don't think about that. Like, kind of like weird, this present darkness stuff. Like, what's going on here? Um, some of you did not get that. Okay. Um, it's, in the, it's in the church library. Okay, um, that, there, that there is spiritual conflict going on right now. We are at war. And to think like that doesn't make us weird. doesn't make us weirdos. It means that we're understanding reality. And we're understanding truth. Or as C.S. Lewis would say, true truth. What's really, really real. Paul sees in the incident at Corinth that the sin, the response... Okay, the forgiveness that all of this is in fact a way to fight back against Satan's schemes. Satan is a schemer, he's a cheat, he's a liar, he's a murderer, and he's really good at it. He's had thousands of years practice. He got our first parents, and he's continuing to go after us. So in this, we see this word outwitted, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan. Some of your versions um, might say, uh, exploited or defrauded or cheated. Uh, the New Living says outsmarted. We wouldn't be outsmarted by Satan. Uh, this word means to unfairly take advantage of another person. So we're to be on our guard to realize when Satan does want to take advantage of us and our situations. Uh, when we divide uh, along doctrinal lines, um, secondary doctrinal lines, I should say, when we divide um, over the color of the paint, if we divide over um, petty secondary things, then we are giving Satan the opportunity to outwit us. Um, you, you guys went with Terry, Terry's class. How many of you went through screw tape letters with Terry? Okay. What a, what a fantastic work. It's not scripture, but it sure is helpful for us to read scripture and to see that Satan's schemes um, are complex um, Satan's schemes are those that uh, turn us away from the things of God, uh, usually not by being blatantly outright in front of us, but by twisting things. That's how Satan works, right? Did God really say? 
That's how Satan works. We need to be aware. We need to have the armor of God. We need to be aware that he is trying to outwit us. Do you, are you aware of that? I mean, I honestly this morning did not pray um, specifically about the unseen realm. I didn't think about this because it's just, I, I'm, I don't think like that. I don't like ghost stories or horror movies. So apparently I'm just a good American. I just deal with the flesh, the physical, and I think about that. But what's going on in and around us right now is what's actually happening. It is in the spiritual realm. We need to do a better job of this. And this doesn't make us freaks. It doesn't mean we do start, start doing incantations and weird rituals. It means that we're just aware, more aware of what's going on. More in tune to what is happening behind the scenes. We need to be on our guard because Satan does want to outwit us. And he doesn't want to just outwit you and you and you and me. He wants to outwit us as a church. So that's why you should pray for the leaders of this church, that we not be outwitted by Satan. That's why we pray, to battle back against Satan and his schemes. So please pray for the leaders of this church. Pray for the leaders of the ministries that you're involved in. Pray for your motives in whatever ministry that you're involved in, whether it's here or or somewhere else in a nonprofit or uh, in another place around uh, the area. Pray that you would not be outwitted by Satan. Now, Paul gives us, in, in the last phrase here, Paul gives us the key. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Which is what I was just saying, that we need to not be ignorant. We need to know what his plans, what his schemes are. One way of translating this would be, for we know the way he thinks. We know the way Satan thinks. We know how he's trying to sow division. We know how he's trying to get in to these conflicts and destroy churches and destroy people. Are you ignorant of Satan's designs, of his plans, of his schemes? That's a scary place to be. And that's the place where a lot of us are if we don't think about it. We need to be more actively engaged in the realities the scripture teaches us. We need to be looking into the scriptures as we read the Bible, day in and day out, to be noticing um, Satan's schemes, Satan's ways of tempting us. We need to be familiar with how Satan goes after us. He doesn't go after you the way he goes after me. He goes after us in different ways. He has different plans and different schemes. And so we need to be aware of those things. We need to not be ignorant of his designs. So, so Paul says, in all this context, in verses 5 through 11, in dealing with forgiveness and restoring this brother to fellowship back in the church, he is saying, by forgiving, we are fighting back against what Satan wants to do. Satan wants them to punish this brother and go, ha, 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 look at that. He's getting it. Man, that, he's just asking for it. I can't believe he did that to Paul, and he is never coming back here. You know, rather, that's, that's actually playing right into Satan's hand, right? That's exactly what is happening, playing right into Satan's hand. In various disciplining passages in the New Testament, Paul and others are very clear that, that Satan is involved in this, and we want to be very careful about this, that we want to be very careful that we're handing him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, 1 Corinthians 5, so that he might be saved. So that he might be saved. Satan wants this man out of the church so that he's not going to hear the gospel, so that he's not going to experience fellowship. Rather, we're going to, we want to 
exclude so that he longs for that and repents and comes back. That's what we want. We want to be knowledgeable of Satan's designs, of his schemes and his plans. We want to be innocent, but we want to be shrewd, right? Jesus told his followers to be shrewd as vipers, to be figuring things out, to be uh, looking for what Satan is trying to do. So this is how we short-circuit Satan's plans. We forgive. We don't let Satan get into interpersonal conflict like that. We don't say yes to the temptation to give in to various things in unforgiveness. We don't hold on to our hurts. We don't become bitter. We refuse to become bitter. We refuse to act in petty ways. We refuse to hold grudges. We refuse to nurse old wounds. Rather, we're going to step up and no matter the pain, we're going to forgive. Because that's what Jesus did for us. Okay? Matthew 18. I, I, I didn't bring this in this morning. I was going to. Matthew 18, um, Jesus talks about the church and he talks about discipline and he talks about forgiveness. And then the very next passage, he tells a parable about a servant who's forgiven of a, an incredible debt, of a massive debt. The king forgives this servant. And then the servant goes back home. Remember what happens next? And there's a guy that works for him that owes him like four cents. Okay, not four. He, he owes him some money, but not nowhere near what he owed the king. And it, the, the, the Bible actually says he, he starts to choke him. He, he, he's, he's, he's not learned the lesson. You just were forgiven. What are you going to do next? Not forgive. What? No, that's, that's wrong. That's, that's wrong. That's not the way we do this. That's the way we fall right into Satan's trap. Listen, in our families and in this church, we need to be quick to forgive. We need to be quick to forgive. Did you deserve forgiveness? Did I forgive, deserve forgiveness? Absolutely not. That's the glory of the gospel. You didn't deserve it. That's why it's grace. You didn't deserve it. And what kind of love did this father show to his children but to send his son to die for them? To grant forgiveness. So this morning, if you don't know forgiveness, if you're, if you're stuck in your sins, if you feel like you could never be forgiven, you've come to the right place. Because you're sitting about a bunch of, bunch of people who've been forgiven of their sins, even though they don't deserve it. This is what we sang about today. We kept singing about forgiveness. I'm forgiven. Why? Because I'm awesome? <laughs> no, because you were forsaken. That's why I'm forgiven. And so we look with the end in mind, we look to the end of confrontation, discipline, and the end of that is restoration of fellowship and relationship. We're not vindictive. We're not looking for revenge. We're not looking to punish just because we like being the ones in charge. We're looking for a repentant heart. Isn't that what you want for your children? Don't you, don't, you, don't, you, don't you hold back tears when you discipline them and just pray for God to, to save them? I can't save my kids. I need God to do it. And so as I discipline and, and as I, yeah, I'm looking to restore, looking to restore my children to the family and that's what we do as a church. So are you living with the end in mind? Are you, are, you, are you looking to the end? Or are we so stuck in the details and in the current things that are going on that we can't see the end goal? We can't see the end. Lift up your eyes. Lift up your eyes. Look down the road. Look at the end. Live with the end in mind. Live with your children's end in mind. Live with your grandchildren's end in mind. Live with your neighbor's end in mind because the end is coming. 
Go to Mark chapter 8. This is where we're going to end. If you live with the end in mind, if you live looking towards the end, if you're able to spiritually discern the path on which you are on, then it will change the way you live. And it will change how you live. It will change what you live for. It will change how you view your wallet and your checkbook and your stocks and your investments and your possessions. It will change the way you look at those things. Mark chapter 8, verse 34. Living with the end in mind and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, Jesus said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Living with the end in mind. Show up at the pearly gates with all your possessions. Poof. Okay? He who dies with the most toys is really, really sad. Because that's not what the end game is all about. It's about saving your life by losing it. And we'll look different if we do that. We'll look very different from this world. We won't be clinging to things. We'll be clinging to Christ. We'll be open-handed with our possessions that God has given so freely to us. Freely have you received, freely give. This is how Christians should live in this world. We should live like those who have the end in mind. So that when conflict arises, it's not, nobody likes conflict. That's not true. Some people like conflict. <laughs> you shouldn't. We don't like confrontation. We don't like the messiness of interpersonal strife. We don't like that. It's uncomfortable. I'd like to avoid that if at all possible. But with the end in mind, we can't avoid that. Because the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is what? Eternal life through the forgiveness of sins. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Father, we are astounded that you forgave us. We're astounded that if we do sin, we have an advocate. That Jesus, our Lord, pleads for us at your right hand that our sins are cast away. They're as far as the east is from the west. They're buried at the bottom of the ocean. What a freeing thing. Thank you, Father, for your forgiveness. I pray this morning that for anyone here in the sound of my voice who does not know you and does not know the assurance of forgiveness of sins, that this morning they would trust you, they would turn to you and understand that Jesus died on the cross because we are sinners. And he offers full forgiveness for those who put their faith in him in his finished work. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. 
Amen.